I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Before we start the show, I'd like to thank Mark Tucker, who just became a new patron. Mark, I appreciate the contributions, and I'd like to thank you and all the existing patrons for your continued support. The show today was made possible by the contributions of Max Stienbock. I normally start a review by saying hello woodworms, but today I'm going to say hello earthworms. If you don't like history and you don't like archaeology, skip this review. Skip this book and consider this a public service announcement about a book that you shouldn't buy for your woodworking library. If on the other hand, like me, you're the kind of woodworker that will watch a historical documentary on YouTube, get sucked in and wake up a few weeks later after watching 20 unrelated but interesting BBC documentaries about everything from castles to farm life in Victorian times, then I suggest you continue listening. A while back, my friend Brad sent me a link to a castle-building documentary. Guédelon in France is a multi-decade construction of a castle using period tools, and it's mind-blowing in its execution. But probably even more so, in terms of its commitment to this kind of research and historical celebration. I can heartily recommend watching it, particularly with the family, if you have kids who enjoy this kind of thing. You can find it on YouTube, and if you're struggling, terms like building a medieval castle using authentic tools, Ruth Goodman, BBC Castle Building, will help you find it. I loved the whole series, and while there's one episode that shows quite a bit about period furniture construction, I happily watched episodes about making tiles, crossbows and painting. And then, when I finished, I did some research and discovered that Ruth Goodman had another series, Tales from the Green Valley, which was the first in the Historic Farm series, and follows historians and archaeologists as they recreate farm life from the age of the Stuarts. They wear the clothes, they eat the food, they use the tools, the skills, and their technology of the 1620s. It was filmed on a small farm in Wales using authentic clothing and equipment from the time, and the series was a lot of fun. The series does feature Ruth Goodman prominently, but also, interestingly enough, well in retrospect interestingly enough, there's a guy on the program called Alex. This turns out to be the author of today's book, Alexander Langlands, although it was something I only realised as I worked my way through craft, an inquiry into the origins and true meanings of traditional crafts. Or, as I think he would prefer the title to be pronounced, Kreft. The English letter Ash is a tricky beast to pronounce. Kreft is a book that is best considered as an exploration of a variety of crafts, and they all kind of along the journey that Alex has travelled in his life. By the time the book is concluded, you will know more about making hay, the history of stone axes, how a Viking settlement could thrive in particularly harsh conditions, what a skep beehive is. Weaving, thatching, leatherwork, the list goes on and slowly starts evolving from a discussion of the craft and craftiness in its historical context to how it could be applied in a modern context. Let's take a look at what you'll get in a typical chapter. I'm going to discuss two chapters here, one on haymaking, which feels relatively accessible, and one on duponds and their complex integration with the environment. Our relationship with hay is one that goes back to the dawn of civilization. I remember reading somewhere that civilization at its simplest is the story of man's relationship with agriculture. 
This in turn allowed the accumulation of surplus and the resulting division of labour that ensued. I've seen this argued as both good and bad. Sapiens and Guns, Germs and Steel are two books that have subtly different ways of looking at this phenomena. Regardless of where you stand on the issue from a values point of view, I think it's safe to say that growing cereal crops and feeding livestock has an almost unprecedented effect on humanity. Alex traces the origins of haymaking and immediately uses an example of the French production of hay forks as an example of craftiness. If you want to see a beautiful wooden fork, look up some images on Google. These pitchforks literally take 10 years to make in France as the form is literally grown rather than assembled. Alex describes the process and it's an interesting journey to follow. Then we jump to the scythe, and this is supplemented by Alex's experiences, and it's clear that he's a very practical archaeologist. Think Christopher Shaw's making a packing box in the Joinan cabinet maker, but multiply this by 10, and apply it to different crafts and implements. I learned quite a bit about concepts that were quite foreign to me before reading the book. I now know about some of the challenges of stacking hay, and how its production differs in different climates. This is a hallmark of the chapters. Alex compares and contrasts different regions' problems and challenges and how that's affected their methodology. So for example, in an area where sunshine is not likely to last for the full drying process, we learn about less efficient methods of making hay that reduce the risk. Farmers going big bang as it were, was quite a big mistake in a climate where an entire crop could be destroyed by a period of wet weather. As early as this first chapter, we get the how, but importantly an examination of the craftiness in the why of the different practices. Haymaking in historical contexts is compared to silage production and the reliance on black polyurethane versus the skill and the energy from which this, well, craft originated. I'm not sure I want to buy a scythe after reading the chapter, but if offered a chance at a local country market, I'd be a lot keener to give it a go now. More importantly, I left the chapter with a sense of how the technology employed and the skill needed fitted into a wider social and economic system. This is something that Alex excels in bringing to the fore. Later in the book, we examine the system of moving herds to the higher ground in times of plenty. It seems counterintuitive, but by doing this, the animals are kept fit and lean so as to survive the winter, and the ample hay and feed is kept for the leaner months. It makes a lot more sense than letting the animals grow fat and lazy in a time of plenty, and then having them starve to death in winter. Alex takes some time to explain the entire cycle to you, and you get an appreciation for how much effort it must have been to move the herds and people away from the farm, and then the necessary supporting structures to keep them provided for while they were away. Water doesn't flow uphill. Animals need to drink. Our ancestors used some very clever thinking and some incredible technology to create the requisite ponds in higher ground. By the time I'd finished this chapter, I had a poignant sense of loss about the skills and accumulated knowledge we are losing and the consequences of our casual disregard of the past. There are ponds that have possibly existed for millennia they were repaired and reconstructed every 50 or 70 years, cycle after cycle. You get an idea of this when you read about a pond called the New Pond, which dates back to the 17th century. And yet today we embrace concrete dams that fail catastrophically 
rather than some of these old ways. Perhaps, the book suggests, not all progress has been good. I feel that history may look back at us, might echo the judgment we have of the early 19th century, about the arrogance of the industrial age and the people who believed they also knew it all. I found a latter chapter, Seed and Sword, which talks about the three and four field system and crop rotation in modern and historical times, and then compares it to the complicated seven field system that appeared in marginal parts of Britain. As the world tries to grapple with the pandemic, it's interesting to read how our seven field system allows for far greater resilience. And while it forgoes the modern super profits of scale farming, it's a system that might make sense even in today's context. I'm reminded of the film documentary, The Biggest Little Farm. It was a film which I had the privilege to watch on a plane back from Highland Woodworking. Well, okay, fair enough, I was flying back from a business trip in the USA. But uh, while I might not remember the business meetings, I certainly remember the turning course at Highland and blowing a fortune on books and tools there. But anyway, I digress. By the end of the book, you'll be able to trace the evolution of Alex's primary messages, and I'll paraphrase them as they resonated with me. While modern handcrafted items are becoming more popular, there's more to their physical beauty and nuance that must be recognized. Craft items cannot exist except in a context of a society that values craft. And yet the systems that create many handcrafted items also value resources in a way that we seem to have lost. Because of abundant fossil fuels, we no longer consider the inherent value of energy in an item. By rethinking this, perhaps we can avoid chasing newer forms of energy and begin instead to reduce our energy consumption. While I was reading this book, I read about progress on a fusion generator in Europe. Normally when I see something like this on Science Alert, I get quite excited. Here's a new technology that promises cleaner, more abundant power. Before the book, I would have told friends to read about this form of progress. And yet, after the book, I'm no longer sure about my reaction. I felt almost a sense of loss that as a society, we should be championing excessive consumption. Perhaps the world's problem is not finding cleaner, cheaper, better energy. Perhaps instead, we need to rethink our relationship with the concept of enough, and more, and disposable. In the book, it is clear that human labor translated into material goods was cherished because of the difficulty of producing it. Linens handed down from generation to generation are not part of a throwaway pop culture t-shirt factory. The author suggests that perhaps we should be rethinking our relationship with energy, whether that's electricity or gas on tap, and in a world where the real cost of fuel is rising, perhaps we should not be so quick to abandon the crafts that have helped us and which have developed over millennia. Resourcefulness and local character based on the natural environment are one way to allow us to exist in a cyclical framework with nature rather than in opposition to her. And herein lies the real power knowledge and skill of craft and craftiness. To give you an idea of Alex's writing style, I'll read a favourite passage of mine, a bit from the book that was particularly meaningful to me. The context of this is that Alex is talking about the length of time some of these crafts have existed for. These deep time signatures also serve as a tacit reminder of the human condition, that we are makers and that we have always lived in a world of making. 
It defines us. We need it. It's good for our health and it makes us better. Having given us the factory floor and mechanized production, the Victorians were quick to realize this. There is no finer illustration of how they felt craft could be used as a tool in moral reform than the establishment of Toynbee Hall in East London, the Edinburgh Social Union, and the Carl Society Institutions in Birmingham, Leicester and Glasgow. These ideas were to continue into the 20th century, not least when in the aftermath of two world wars, a generation of young men needed a remedy that cured their souls as well as their broken bodies. As part of this program to rehabilitate blind, invalided and mentally crushed ex-servicemen, my grandfather, with repeated infections in his war wound, found himself stitching a rug as he convalesced in a hospital in southwest London in the 1950s. My grandmother, now in her 80s, has her husband's handicraft serving as a bedspread. Since his passing, it continues to provide some remedy for her loss. I think John Ruskin was right. Factory manufacture robs us of a special something, contemplation. Not of life, of love, of the big who am I, where am I, what am I doing. But in the case of the dry stone waller, who holds apparently identical stones in each hand, the simple cognitive contemplation between one stone and another. Which to use, how to work it, where to strike it. Thoughts that exercise the mind in silence and solitude. This, I believe, is what we truly lack in today's society. Crafts are a vehicle through which we can think, through which we can contemplate, and through which we can be. So in conclusion, Croft is 344 pages long and is written by Alexander Langlands. You can find the book at the usual places. I couldn't find a good way to support the author, however. And so I'd recommend, given the nature of the book, maybe you should try and find it at a local bookstore. As at November 2020, it costs $13 for a paperback version, and I can't see any reason to go with the hardcover. A Patreon asked me to review the book, and I'm going to caveat my rating by saying that if you are curious about the content, it's a good read. I don't think you'll regret buying it, but by the same token, I don't think it's a particularly important book to have on your bookshelf as a woodworker. In fact, I think the key principles are actually better explored in a Mortis and Tenon magazine article, or something similar to that. Perhaps a series of articles. To be frank, the concepts and the message of the book are important. In fact, perhaps they're very important. But I'd suggest they're not a critical read for woodworkers. If you read the article I referenced about the radical efficiency of green woodworking, you'll see that it cites Langlands as an influence. And perhaps that's a more accessible way of exploring energy cost and craftiness for many woodworkers. Likewise, the Cut the Craft podcast is a good listen if you're interested in traditional handcrafts and want to explore them in some depth. If you're from Britain and are nostalgic, or perhaps you have a deep interest in traditional craft as it relates to farming practice, such as scything grass, growing cereal crops, beekeeping, leatherwork, or even topics like building a stone drywall, then the book is interesting. It opened my eyes to many aspects of these crafts that are perhaps forgotten knowledge. 
If you're historically curious, the book is a good overview of a variety of crafts and the energy, skill set and mindset to make them happen. The writing is engaging, and while I'd suggest it's not a book you're going to read cover to cover in one sitting, I think you'll enjoy reading a chapter a night before bed or whenever you've got a short break. However, in the context of woodworking, I cannot give it a very high rating, so I'm giving it a 4 out of 10 in the category Philosophy, as really all the book will provide you with, in our context, is some philosophies that could be applied to hand tool versus power and energy usage, as well as an argument for developing skill. The rating sounds awful, and I feel bad rating it in this way. But the podcast is not a general book review podcast, in which case I think it would have got a much higher rating. It's well written and interesting, and I think the key message, how being crafty is about resourceful living, going back to basics, and a mindful life achieved through beautiful simplicity, I think it's an important message for our times. But by no means, in my opinion, is it a book that a woodworker should rush out and buy. I know perhaps there'll be people who are upset on this, but if you think I've got it brutally wrong, drop me an email or send me a voice note with your view on the book, and I'll try and include it in a future show. So that's it for now, Earthworms. And remember, stop and learn something about the past. Modern society has no monopoly on intelligence, and it's sobering to think that 50 years ago, car manuals had advice on setting the timing. Today, they warn you not to drink the battery acid. A lot has been lost. And keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying, maybe something to be featured on a future episode, send me an email at handtooledbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes. <laughs>